Now this morning I want to bring, begin a time of studying and I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to uh, the book that we will be studying, Ezra, Nehemiah. Now right away when I say that you say, why book and not books? Well, because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from the beginning in the Hebrew Bible um, were not two books, but rather one. Uh, Origen in the third century, and then Jerome, who did the Latin Vulgate, finally carried out. Um, both of these men saw the book as two, but the Jewish historian Josephus and the early church historian Eusebius, as well as ancient Jewish texts, all treated as one book. And there's a reason. And the reason is that um, it really is one story of the return from exile of Judah, of God's people. Now, we have it two books, and sometimes I'll refer to it as one, sometimes two. But if you look at the names of the two books, you'll see that it is Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's because at the center of the first book is the story of Ezra, and at the center of the second is the story of Nehemiah. Now, there are a number of peculiar things about these books. One is that there is no quotation in the New Testament from any of the text of these books. But that does not uh, affect our commitment to them as being the inspired Word of God and having much which is uh, profitable for us to learn from them. Another interesting thing is that here we have the third sacred language of Scripture, namely Aramaic. You have probably been aware for quite a number of years that a man preparing to be a pastor has to learn what we call the biblical languages. And it used to be thought that the Greek, which is in Scripture, was some special God-inspired form of Greek that uh, was referred to actually as ecclesiastical Greek until not just about a hundred years ago. But then we found out that, in fact, what we thought of as ecclesiastical Greek um, is really the street language Greek. It's quite a common Greek. And the Aramaic that we see here appears... Um, in this book, or these books, in two places particularly, in the fourth chapter, verse 8, if you'd turn there with me, Ezra chapter 4, verse 8, and you see that this is the beginning of the letter to King Artaxerxes, and it continues the whole way through to chapter 6, verse 18, not the letter, but the Aramaic, and there... The Aramaic ceases. So we have the equivalent of a little over two chapters, or around two chapters, of a third sacred language, Aramaic. So, if somebody to be a pastor needs to learn the languages of Scripture, there's a third one that we should all learn, and that is Aramaic. And I'm very glad that nobody's made that suggestion. I had a hard enough time getting through Hebrew. Although some of you think Hebrew, somebody was telling me they think Hebrew is easy. I don't think it's easy at all, but anyhow. Um, so, this is uh, a book which is written in the language of the exile. Um, the Hebrews, the Jews, when they were carried away to a foreign land, took on the language of that land and became uh, two-language people. And Aramaic was the common language used at the time. And the reason that this letter, for instance, is written in Aramaic is that the 
the court would have used Aramaic as the court language. So when they got done quoting a letter, they would have quoted it in the court language, which was Aramaic. So this is a unique book. It really is one book broken into two. And most Bibles today have two books. It's a book that's not quoted in the New Testament. It's a book that has a third biblical language, Aramaic. And as I said, at the center of both of these books, or the center of this text, is the account of Israel's return from exile. Now, what had brought on the captivity, the exile, which is the setting for Ezra and Nehemiah and for their return? Well, for five centuries, the Israelites had been ruled by a succession of kings. And one of the very interesting things to do is very quickly read through the biblical accounts of the kings that, that governed the people of God. And what you'll see is there were basically three categories of kings. There were kings who honored God and tore down the idols and, and wiped out the high places other than Jerusalem where God's people were worshiping. They were not to worship anywhere but in Jerusalem. There were kings, and so these kings were, were very good. There were kings who worshipped the true God but didn't bother cleaning out the, the, the people and, and their idolatry, and so they left the high places in the idolatry. And then third, there were kings who did not worship the true God and kings who, in fact, themselves promoted and propagated idolatry. Well, you know, as you read the Old Testament, that much of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, the accounts and kings, much of it has to do with God's appeal to his people, to the kings, to the leaders, to forsake idolatry and to return to him and to his law. But the people of God wouldn't listen. And although God lovingly sent his prophets to speak to them again and again and again and again and again, and sometimes one of the ways the people would mock the prophets is by saying to them, you know, you're speaking to us again and again and again and again and again. You know, well, let's hear what you have to say today, as if they cared. Despite God doing this, despite his kindness in sending the prophets, uh, eventually they would not listen and we have the account first of the northern kingdom, Israel, being taken into captivity. And then we have the sacking of Jerusalem and of Judah uh, in 586 B.C., a little over 500 years prior to the coming of Christ. Now, I want to read. There are many places you could go to read that history, but if you'd look with me at Second Chronicles chapter 36, 2 Chronicles 36. I want to read a short section. Keep your hand in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. But 2 Chronicles 36, just a page back, you'll see, beginning with verse 11, a summary of what pre immediately uh, precedes going into captivity, or I should say the account of them being taken into captivity. And this is what we read, Zedekiah the king at the time. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. I'm picking up with verse 11. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. 
Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the time until the rule, excuse me, of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And then we have the last two verses of Second Chronicles which are almost identical to the first two verses of Ezra Nehemiah. So this is the context. Judah would not listen to God's servants, the prophets, and so their nation was overrun by the Babylonians, and Judah's king, Zedekiah, Jedekiah, was blinded and was carried off to Babylon along with a number of his subjects around 586-587 B.C. Now, as I said, Ezra and Nehemiah picks up the story as God has mercy on his people and prepares to bring a remnant out of captivity back home to their promised land. Both Ezra and Nehemiah, these books, record the history of the return of Israel following exile. The first book, Ezra, records the history of the people's return and their rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem around the years 5. 38 to 516 B.C. And then it also contains the account of Ezra's sober efforts to remove from the people of God the thorn of intermarriage, which threatened to undo their covenant blessings. The second book, Nehemiah, records the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and reorganization of her civic and religious life under the law of God between the years 458 and 420 B.C. So that's the history. And there are three main historical themes in this restoration around which these two books center. First of all, the restoration of the temple, and this really has to do with Ezra. Second, the restoration of the law, and this has to do with both Ezra and Nehemiah. Some people say that the book of Ezra ends, I think the word used later in, in something I'll read to you is abruptly. Well, it ends with a very, very uh, pathetic scene of families being divided. And this is part of a restoration of the law of God as intermarriage is viewed uh, with the horror that it ought to be viewed. And uh, marriages and families are broken up by Ezra. And that's the end of that part of the, 
the book. That's the end of the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah picks it up again. So first, Ezra restoring the temple, then the law. And then Nehemiah also restoring the law, but Nehemiah restoring the wall, rebuilding the wall. And these are the three themes, the temple, the law, and the wall. Now, by the time of the Jews' return from exile, the same conquerors who had taken them away from their land were not the people, were not the power that let them come back. It had now been, uh, the Babylonian Empire had now been overrun and replaced by the Persian Empire. And I want to read a little section from Derek Kidner's excellent commentary on this book. You'll hear much from Kidner over the weeks. But he summarizes the situation this way. He says this, quote, Ezra and Nehemiah covers a little over 100 years from 538 B.C. when Cyrus sent the Jewish exiles home to re-erect their temple to some point around 430 B.C. when Nehemiah exercised his second term of office in Jerusalem. The history is not continuous in these books, but centers around three movements and personalities. First, there was the struggle to get the temple rebuilt in the days of Zerubbabel. And this went on from 538 to 516, and it dominates Ezra, the first six chapters. And then we hear no more for nearly 60 years when another expedition sets out from Babylonia. And this time it is led by Ezra, whom the emperor has commissioned to enforce the law of Moses, a task whose immediate consequences bring the book to a painful, and this is the word, abrupt conclusion. Then the third great personality is Nehemiah, who largely tells his own invigorating story of rebuilding the city wall, of outfoxing his enemies, repopulating Jerusalem, and routing the traitors within his camp. By the end of these two books, the former exiles have had their chief structures, visible and invisible, reestablished and their work confirmed to be a people instructed in the law and separated from the nation. So you see here, as I've read this from Kidner, that Ezra doesn't even show up in the book of Ezra until in the seventh chapter. And uh, that it is 60 years into the work. And you want to keep that in mind as we begin our study of Ezra Nehemiah. Now, you all know, because you uh, are students of the Word of God, you know that the history that is presented in this Word always has, and I want to say the word spiritual, but the minute I say spiritual, you all think mystical. And I don't want to say mystical. You know that it has eternal importance. It has theological, doctrinal importance. And that is very true of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And in these books, there are three main theological themes. Three themes that all of us would do well to keep note of and to track as they appear. First, there's the theme that there is only one true God. Now, as I've talked, you've heard a lot about rulers and governments and, and armies. I haven't gone into the details, but you know that any time a people are taken into captivity, any time a foreign army comes and overruns them, uh, it can become, uh, to the people that are taken into captivity especially, but even to those of us reading uh, many centuries later of the captivity, it can become uh, enticing to us to think that the real power behind the power is the king. You know, is the emperor, is, is the military might. And we begin to get caught up in reading about the various strategies and uh, tactics and uh, empires and geopolitical environment. And especially today, 
when we're keeping track of whether or not Germany is going to flinch, uh, whether or not France is going to sort of, you know, chill out, uh, whether or not Bush is going to uh, get, a, get, a, get a different set of thoughts about this, whether or not the Security Council is going to uh, go on with President Bush. Uh, all these geopolitical forces today, it would be very easy to think that what's really going on is one nation is doing what it thinks best for the Western world or for itself or to end terrorism or whatever your various take on it is and to absolutely remove from this any mention of God except at the point where we begin to actually send troops in and then we'll start praying. <laughs> but certainly the orchestration, certainly the trips of Colin Powell and uh, you know all these, all these machinations of political rulers and armies and money and oil and... And, uh, you know, this doesn't have to do with God. This is just men doing what men do. All right? Well, nothing can be further from the truth. Um, and that's one of the first lessons that we learn as we read Ezra and Nehemiah. And it, the lesson is there is only one true God. There, there is not the God of Iraq and the God of Great Britain, the God of France, the God of Germany, and then the God of the United States. Um, but there is one God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who rescued Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It is Jehovah. And he it is who created the heavens and the earth. You think of that great scene in the Areopagus in Athens where the Apostle Paul stands up and says, forget all the gods of your city, including the, the, the unknown God. There is only one God. He is the ruler of all things. He's the maker of all things. And without fail, he will order all things in such a way that the words of his prophets are fulfilled. He is not some localized deity. He's not some neighborhood God cringing in fear as he considers the gods of the Egyptian, Babylonian, Assyrian, Persian, Ottoman, British, or American empires. God is not afraid of the United States. God is not afraid of nuclear warheads. Everything that happens, God has ordained. So this is one main theological truth that is woven throughout these books. There is one God, and he is in control of everything. Second, this God who is the only true God who has made all things and who is in control of all things, this God has, for some reason, decided that he is going to particularly track a certain people. And this is what we call the covenant. God has a covenant with his people, and God actually has the audacity to order everything in this world in such a way that it works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Now, you want to talk about megalomania. You want to talk about a lack of a sense of proportion. You want to talk about a people group that are thoroughly confused and deluded. That's what you have to say about this or you have to believe in a covenant-keeping God. 
Because the minute you're introduced to the concept that this is the only God, that he made everything, that he controls everything, you're then introduced to his covenant people. And you see that he made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And you see that that covenant is the great theme throughout Scripture. And that he orders everything to fulfill his covenant. And that he hasn't stopped doing that, but that if you approach your life without reference to his covenant, if, if you think that your life is uh, subject to the fates, as the ancient world would say it, or subject just to uh, uh, random acts of unkindness, <laughs> then you don't understand this God. Because the second theme is, this God has made a covenant with his people and he will not fail to keep it. They are his peculiar people. He has set his affection on them, not because of anything in them to merit his attention and care, but precisely because they, we, are of no account. Few and weak, because this better shows his power and glory. And so to Nehemiah then, he is not, Nehemiah doesn't refer to him as a God. Nehemiah refers to him as what? My God. What a brash thing. What a bodacious thing to say about the only true God. He is my God. And yet this is the cry of faith. And so to all Israel and today to all Israel, to those who have placed their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, He is our God. The God who chose Abraham. The God who rescued Israel from Egypt. The God who now fulfills the words of his prophets by bringing his people home from exile just as he promised. They are his covenant people and they shall return to their land with tears of joy at the end of the 70 years just as he promised them through his servants the prophet. Only a remnant would return, but a remnant would return. In Isaiah 10.22 we see one of the many places this is promised where God through his prophets says... For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. So first of all, he is the God who created everything and who controls everything according to his will. Second, he has declared his will and that will is that he is in relationship with his covenant people and that we are to call him our God, my God, and that he will order all things for our good, for our perfecting, for our protection, and for our redemption. Then third, that this God who is the creator of all things and who has made a covenant with his people and promised to rescue them from every evil thing, this God has chosen to use means in his work. Now, this is the great scandal that I was mentioning last week in connection with many biblical Christians today. Many biblical Christians want to have, as I said earlier, sort of a mystical faith that depends upon the moment-by-moment uh, -moment emotions and, and posture of their heart. Uh, many Christians think of themselves as having just a direct personal relationship with God and view all the trappings of the church Everything physical, everything concrete, everything fleshly is really being more of a hindrance than a help. Uh, if you talk to many Christians today and you ask them whether or not uh, those who claim the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God 
of Jesus Christ, whether they should be baptized. People will say, well, yes, you should be baptized. You say, why? They say, well, because Jesus commanded it. And you say, but does it really matter? And they'll say, no, it doesn't really matter, except that you should obey. And you think, well, now, what kind of a theology of baptism is this that it doesn't really matter because, after all, all that matters is what is in your heart, but you should do it because Jesus said to do it. Well, this is a gospel, this is a religion without means of grace. This is a religion that turns its back on the tools that God has lowered himself to use. I keep reminding you as a congregation that if God wanted to, God could easily have you taught every Sunday by an angel. And he also could have had you taught, and maybe you think he has, by a jackass. Because that's who taught who? Balaam. (laughs) But for some reason, God has chosen to have his church through the centuries taught by men. Men with uh, feet of clay, men who fail you, men who don't love their wives and their children as they ought, men who are sinners, men who have to repent. And you either view this as demeaning to yourself, why should I lower myself to be taught by a man, I need an angel, or even a jackass would be better. But here I am, and all through your life, there he will be. And he will be appointed and ordained by God to preach to you. And he won't be perfect, far from it. And he'll have many failures constantly. But that's what he's called to do. And this is the third theme. God is the only God, and he orders everything according to his will. He has declared his relationship with his covenant people. And everything that he controls, which is everything will be brought together in such a way as to perfect and to purify and to save his people. And he will use means to do that. Now, if I were to ask you today, what are the means of grace? Many of you would, would, would really not have an answer for that. And that's my failure. But it's very interesting what the means of grace that you'll see woven throughout Ezra and Nehemiah are. The means of grace are what? Number one... The means of grace are the worship of the assembled people. Uh, When you read Old Testament history, the ancient world, they'll call this the cultus. I'm just going to refer to it as corporate worship. Uh, Back then it was things like sacrificing on the altar to God. Um, But it was what they did when they came together, not at the high places, often their individual trip, family trip, kind of this is my area thing. But when they did what God told them, which was to gather together. Now, you know where I'm going to go, right? Think of how many people, and I don't know how many times I've dealt with this, who say, you know, I can worship God wherever I want. I go out into the woods, you know. I'm more in, in communion with God when I'm, you know, up in my tree stand waiting for the buck, you know, than I am when I'm with the people of God. Well, you know... Forgive me here, but that is precisely what a high place is. No pun intended. (laughs) It is an individual rebelling against God's specific commands to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, to submit to those in authority over us. The guy says, no, I don't need that. I'm off in my tree stand. And I commune with God in the early morning as I wait for my buck. 
Well, God, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, he refers again and again through his uh, author, the Holy Spirit and the human person. And by the way, we don't have any statement of who it was who actually wrote these books. But he refers, first of all, to his tool of the corporate worship. He works consistently through the gathering together of the people of God in corporate worship. The second tool or means of grace that he uses are the prayers of God's people, which tend to be, by the nature of prayer, usually alone or individual or maybe family. But it doesn't have the corporate aspect that corporate worship does. And then third, he works through, guess what? I mean, this is like a no-brainer. He works through Holy Scripture. He works through the Bible. And you'll see these themes throughout the pages of these books. God made known His perfect will to His flock, the sheep of His pasture, and He speaks through that Word. What then are the theological themes throughout Ezra and Nehemiah? Number one, one God made everything and controls everything according to His perfect will. Number two, Israel is His covenant people and He will not abandon them but He will fulfill His covenant promises to them and to all who today also are His covenant people through faith in Jesus Christ. And number three, as He does everything to protect and to see to the good of His covenant people, He uses tools or means to fulfill this covenant. Corporate worship, prayer, and Holy Scripture. Now let's read the first 11 verses of Ezra chapter 1. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up 
from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now, there's a little phrase that occurs three times in the book of Ezra. And that phrase is, the hand of our God. And this phrase points to a larger truth that permeates the text to which I've already referred. And that is that the God of the Israelites holds all things in the palm of his hand. That he orders the great and the mighty and that he also orders the low and the humble of this world according to his own perfect will. And how could you have a more clear statement of that than these first two verses of Ezra chapter 1? Look at them again. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, you get that far, but then look what comes. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he, Cyrus, sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So here we have beginning the account of the rebuilding of the house of God, a task that's going to take many years and which is at the center of these books. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah are also focused on this time and work. And yet, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that this God, the only true God, would have servants, the prophets, who would focus themselves on the work that God had also ordained Cyrus to help do, namely the rebuilding of his temple. Now, what of Cyrus? Well, we have to... Uh, everybody has different ways of approaching Scripture. And we should always uh, try to enter into other people, time, other cultures, uh, ways of understanding Scripture because we get very much into ruts in our lives. And one of the ways that we can enter into a new way of seeing Scripture is to look at it with the eyes of skepticism. And by that I mean not being skeptical about Scripture or God, but rather being skeptical about ourselves. And asking ourselves as we read any particular text, what is there here that violates my modern sensitivities? What is there here that just seems a little weird and strange? And we shouldn't say that, you know, that it's wrong, but we should recognize when we look at it and it's, it, it, it doesn't easily go down if it were a drink. It, you know, we'd be gagging on it. We'd be thinking, what is this? And I think this is such a place when we see, I think to us, if we're honest, I think it should seem preposterous to us to think of the great Cyrus, the ruler of Persia, the conqueror of mighty Babylon, acting in such a way as what it says here, which is to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. I mean, remember, Jeremiah, when he spoke, you know, he was laughed at by God's people. He wasn't taken seriously. He's the weeping prophet because he had nothing but rejection. Now, if he wasn't taken seriously by the very covenant people that God sent him to speak to, why on earth would the ruler of the Persian Empire have his court decrees simply be a function of 
the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And yet that's explicitly what the text says. The text says that Cyrus did this, what? Quote, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. And then it says that Cyrus had his spirit stirred up by the Lord to the end that he would send out a proclamation across his kingdom calling the people of God to return home and rebuild Jehovah's temple. Now, how could such a thing happen? Well, surely Cyrus and all the scribes of the Persian courts working at this time thought of this decree as a quite minor act of diplomacy to rebuild goodwill among their conquered ethnic and religious groups. I mean, that's what they would have thought. They would have thought, well, this is a very interesting act of diplomacy. This is sophisticated statesmanship what one Bible scholar refers to as an enlightened act of political leadership. And you know, given the prejudices of our modern times, why they would refer to this as an enlightened act. But in Ezra 1, we read that it is God who caused this to come about. Well, why? So that Isaiah 45:13 would be fulfilled. And I will read that. It says, I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And so Cyrus says, yes, sir. So that God's word in Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14 might be fulfilled. And this is that text. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. You know, as we go through Scripture, we can follow the path, the very, very predictable path of the will and power of God moving the great and mighty to accomplish His will. Here, it's Cyrus and Persia. What is it that caused Cyrus to adopt such a progressive and such a liberal policy towards the religious commitments and homeland of Israel? Well, first, let's ask the question in a secular sense. Let's ask it um, as it would be taught at a university department of ancient history today. What would cause him to do this? Well, if you trace back the empires of the ancient world, you'll see that neither the Assyrian nor the Babylonian empires, Persia's predecessor empires, were kind or tolerant toward their subjects, let alone encouraging them to restore the fortunes of their local gods. For instance, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom around 722 B.C., they simply replaced the population, and hence the origin of the Samaritans. They weren't an enlightened people group. They came in and they said, you're out of here, 
and they removed them and they replaced them with another group. And so what you do is you, you cut away the people's connection to their land because their connection to their land is one of the most potent political and military forces. All right? And so the other empires, not being enlightened, not being sensitive, not being gentle, came in, they pulled them out of the land, they put a whole new people group in there, and then you saw they brought the holy vessels from their cultists, from their worship. What? Well, they didn't bring them to keep them until such time as they could send the people back to their lands and use them in their worship. They brought them into their temples and into their palace, and they sometimes even used them for their body parties. So the, the, the utensils that had been made for the worship of the only true God became instruments of unbelievable uh, profanation, things that were used to encourage and to, and to support sin, things that were used to honor uh, idols, uh, the, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians, um, the gods of the Persians. You can imagine the terrible conflict. You can imagine how much the captive peoples hated the rulers and the empires that those rulers stood for when they were treated in this way. You know, being pulled away from the land. We Americans live without land today. We don't think much of the commitment to the land, but if you've ever lived in a farming community, you know that it is very difficult to pry a man away from land that has been in his family for generations. And yet this is what the empires did. Now, imagine, here comes Cyrus. And Cyrus has a whole different take on it. Cyrus looks at this anger and at the oppression and at the, the complete insensitivity and Cyrus thinks there's a better way of doing this. And we read about Cyrus. I'm, I'm going to read from a couple of different books now. But we read, it says, Cyrus, quote, encouraged the peoples he conquered to develop their own culture and to continue their own religion. He and some of his successors even helped support the local priests in conquered nations, allowing captive peoples to return to their homelands. This is Brenneman. And then Lassor, Hubbard, and Bush in their Old Testament survey say this about him. They say, quote, Cyrus was an enlightened ruler whose general policy was to permit peoples deported by the Babylonians to return to their homelands. He also carefully respected the religious sensibilities of his subject peoples and governed by permitting considerable local autonomy. And then this is what Kidner says, quote, Cyrus, the first king of Persia, identified himself with his new subjects even to the extent of professing allegiance to Marduk and other gods of Babylon. At the same time, restoring the images of non-Babylonian deities to their former cities, repatriating their worshippers, rebuilding their sanctuaries, and soliciting their patronage. The so-called Cyrus Cylinder has the following extract. Now, this is a very interesting thing. In one of my books, I open up the page, and there's this cylinder, there's a picture of it, and underneath it says British Museum. So that means you can go over to the British Museum in London, and you can see this actual cylinder where this is written. Now, can you imagine 150 years ago what they would have said to you if you had told them that the time would quickly come when there would be a cylinder that would be discovered 
that would uh, confirm the very enlightened policy that appears here in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. People would have laughed at you. They would have said, now, come on, our faith doesn't depend upon such sort of concrete props, you know. You know, the holy book is a holy book, you know. But now you look, and here's this cylinder, and here's what it says on the cylinder. Listen to this. I returned, this is Cyrus speaking, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities... Ask daily Bel and Babo for a long life for me. Now, what's going on here? We all know what's going on. It's a combination of diplomacy and of sort of this sense that maybe there's an unknown God out there. <laughs> and so here Cyrus is saying, I can kill two birds with one stone. I can get everybody out of my hair, set up a decentralized system of government where people think that they have self-determination when they really don't but I'll be more sort of tactful about it. And then maybe, as I do it, they'll be so grateful that they'll pray to their gods. Maybe one of their gods can help me. Maybe I'll have a long life, you know. I'll get them to pray for me. And so Cyrus did what? Well, we read it. Ezra tells us, Cyrus proclaimed, probably both by sending out criers and also by posting their equivalent to our modern-day handbill, all right. He proclaims across his kingdom his enlightened decree that the Jews would be encouraged to return home and restore their temple and worship. Imagine that. Now jump with me for a second. If we think that Caesar Augustus appears in Scripture, sacred history, only because he sent out a decree that all the world would be taxed, and that that decree in turn caused Mary and Joseph to go up to Bethlehem, where the Bible prophesied that Jesus would be from, then why would it be a surprise to us that Cyrus would send out a decree and that through that decree, God's covenant people, not our God, the only true God, He is our God, and that that decree that He sent out, thinking He was sophisticated in His diplomacy and in His religion, that that decree would fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, of God's servant, the prophets. And so we have a similar thing. Luke 2, it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph also, verse 4, went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There's one verse that is the verse for us to approach this whole beautiful doctrine. And that's this verse from Proverbs 21, verse 1, where it says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I want to read a couple of excerpts from the Westminster Confession of Faith where godly men have looked at Scripture, specifically Ezra and Nehemiah, and then they have written this. This is what they have said. 
chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. God, from all eternity, did by the most and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so is thereby, neither is He the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. In other words, Cyrus did have his will, and he carried it out. But God had decreed, and he fulfilled his will. Section 2 of chapter 3, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions? And then moving down to chapter 5. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. In other words, this is when uh, your dad says you're going to bed and your mother says you can stay up. And you go back to your, your dad and you say, Mother said I can stay up. And you will then run into your father's immutable will. <laughs> Which is you're going to bed, no matter what mother said. Usually. I, in our family, actually it works the opposite way. But never mind. <laughs> the free and immutable counsel of his will, the unchangeable counsel of his will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And skipping down to section 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does sometimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. And then skipping down to section 7, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it takes care of his church, his covenant people, and disposes all things to the good thereof. Now, here, here's, here's where I want to end. God, God's covenant people, God's tools to deal with his covenant people. Everything is ordered for our good, right? From eternity past, he set this up. Now, what's the application of that to you? The application is two things. The first thing is you should grieve and mourn and sit in the pain of your life when God brings it to you. You should not try to remove it with drugs or alcohol or ditzy conversations on the telephone with people who can help you to forget. But the Bible says you should sit under it. Pain is not an evil. It is painful. But ask, ask the leper whether he wishes he could have pain again. And the answer is yes. Uh, pain is a tool that God has used all through history, and he uses it still today to cause us to come to him for our remedy. 
And it's very clear that the Jews were brought to pain. They were exiled. They wouldn't listen. They were exiled. And yet, when we go to Scripture, we have such beautiful pictures of them sitting in the pain, of them submitting to the dispensations of God, difficult though they were, and knowing that God has not cast them off forever. Now, turn with me to Psalm 137. There is a, an Anglican chant that comes out of this psalm that I hope, hint, hint, that the choir will learn. Why does the Bible have a chapter like this in? Could it be that a chapter like this is in here for men and women who have been sexually abused as children? Why would this chapter be in the Bible? Could it be for a wife who has been abandoned by her husband? Why would this chapter be in the Bible? Are there any songs on our Christian radio station that approximate Psalm 137? Ask yourself that question. Do you go to a church that allows you to sing Psalm 137 as an act of worship? I mean, I'm really serious about this. Or do you have a religion that this kind of stuff is just like a cosmic bummer and, and, and you drink or you do drugs or you have ditzy friends that let you forget it? Or a ditzy pastor? Listen to this. This is the psalm that they wrote and sang at the time that they were under the captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth. They demanded us songs and mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Did you know that was in the Bible? Did you know it was there? You think of people who have been abused as children, and we speak lightly of these things. Our fathers write articles about it in the newspaper, and we read about it on the Internet. And then we come to this chapter, and we read what God has ordained to be written in His Word about the oppression and the persecution and the suffering of his people under Babylon. And then we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, and what we find is they sat under it, as Lamentation says, they bore the yoke in their youth. But God did not abandon them forever. His faithfulness is great. And Ezra and Nehemiah is the account of God 
again, lifting up his covenant people. They've done their tears. They've done their weeping. They've suffered under oppression. And now God rescues them. And that's the story that we'll be studying. Let's pray together.